week of March 6th, 2022, this is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 575, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news-making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. I quit. Wait, what? I quit. Wait, first, intru- first introduce yourself so that people know who's quitting. Uh, and in Birmingham, Alabama, I'm Michael Giltz, and I quit. I am quitting the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. As soon as I am a member, I will quit. I want to join with Tom Fleischman, the Oscar winner. He's an award-winning recording mixer who has worked for decades with Martin Scorsese, worked on a number of films with Spike Lee, won an Oscar for Hugo. He has quit Ampass over its dumping of eight categories from the live broadcast. There is a lot of anger. Anybody who thought, well, people are going to kvetch him. It's like, no, no. (laughs) You could have dumped three categories very easily. Nobody would have objected to the shorts. That, now you're just talking about you have five more categories. How much time did you save by dumping those five extra categories and infuriating everyone? And everybody who's nominated feels obligated, whether they feel that way or not, as they should, to say this is wrong and terrible and awful. You know, a lifetime of work. This is your peak moment of your whole career. And they're like, nah, not on the air. So there's a lot of anger. And of course, there were a lot of ways to fix the Oscars, but uh, I'm not sure this is the way. Well, it doesn't help when the president, you know, David Rubin and Don Hudson are out there saying, Everybody will be in their seats and, you know, it'll be just like it just won't be televised live. You know, we're just going to it'll be a full audience. Uh, and, you know, while we have staggered entrances on the red carpet, it'll be the full um, like there. Wait, you said everybody it, was in their seats. Right. How, how can it be a full how, audience how if, if George Clooney is on the red carpet talking away? Yeah, right. Exactly. Well, we're not going to cut out even a second of Showbiz Sandbox. That's why we give you full deluxe episodes every week. What is our overstuff episode going to be about this time? Well, I know we're going to get a little, I don't want to say it's not political. We're going to be bringing you up to date on the, the Ukrainian situation, at least from a cultural perspective. And David Campbell took us to school. He's a disenfranchised Brit in Helsinki. And at the end of the show, you can write to dirt to, at showbizsandbox.com. Dirt at showbizsandbox. D I R T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888 567 SAND. That's 888 567 7263. We're on Twitter at Showbiz Sandbox and Facebook, slash Sandbox. We'll get to David's email at the end of the program. Wait for the kicker where Spurline realizes he didn't read the notes. Keep going. Keep going. Oh. Okay. Well, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, he said, reading the notes, we are still in a war, on a war footing, sadly, but that hasn't stopped the entertainment biz. The Batman opened in almost every country around the world. The franchise has set opening weekend records with remarkable consistency, but the pandemic and a crisis in Europe made certain this Batman would not be the biggest Batman of all. Although it is the biggest because it's three hours long and Robert <laughs> Pattinson is very tall. But, you know, other than that, it's not the biggest Batman of all time. Anyway, still, it's pretty darn big, okay? Oh, plus AMC charged more money to people seeing Batman. Genius! Or one way that, you know, frankly, you're just going to make streaming win the, the, the war here. We've got some streaming numbers, by the way, just as NBC exits its deal with Hulu. When will Disney just roll that into Disney Plus and call it a day? They really, I guess they should, but I think there's a reason they don't. On Inside Baseball, we focus again on the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the unprecedented impact that's had on entertainment and sports all over the world. Plus, get this, Michael. Did you know we have a letter from a Brit in Helsinki who schools us on the difference between the EU and NATO? I even put in the word schools. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> that was my word. <laughs> you just riffed on that, and that's exactly what I wrote down. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines, if Sperling has read them. I have read them. But first, Michael, you know, as always, we turn it over to you, our entertainment journalist extraordinaire, to fill us in on last week's box office. That's right. I'm entertainment journalist extraordinaire. Even though I did do political stuff for a couple years, I am not a political journalist extraordinaire, as we will prove in the notes. We're looking at box office around the world. This is for the week ending March 6th. We've gotten an updated figures on The Batman, which is, of course, the number one film around the world, The Batman, or as one friend reviewed it, The Boring. <laughs> I thought that was funny. Someone else said they called it The Darkest Night. <laughs> that's a book and film. <laughs> that's a good headline. A book and film globe, a website that I have contributed to. Our friend Stephen Garrett reviewed the film, gave it a very good review, and the headline was The Darkest Night. <laughs> so I thought that was very good. It opened with new numbers coming in. We'd had an extra six million dollars at tacked on in North America, two hundred and fifty six million dollars worldwide. A great opening for that movie. Uh, though the bat, though the Batman franchise has had. A remarkable record of setting opening weekend records. Like four out of the seven movies have set opening weekend records for all time. Uh, it, it had it's probably the most successful in that term uh, than any other franchise. I think maybe the Avengers movies, but there's only been what three of them. Uh, so you know, it's it was a long-standing record for that man. Batman was the most popular. Uh, Spider's getting up there now too. At number two, around now, the wait a second before before you oh. go on on that, on that note. Okay, mm -hmm. uh, it's off about what twenty percent? Would you say the the you know from the high? You know, in other words, it it, it was down for a Batman movie by about twenty percent. I don't know what you're what are you comparing it to the last one? Yeah, just the last ones. That, oh, that well, yeah, but who cares? I mean, it's a pandemic. But when you think about it, it, it was only able to have three screenings a day rather than four which is about 20%, 25% of the screenings that you would normally have. Well, I don't think there was any problem with capacity. In my theaters, I saw all the showtimes you could possibly want. I oh, saw okay. right. a lot of, IMAX was full up, but there are only yes. so many IMAX screens. So I will grant you that. But when you're looking at showtime, I don't think anybody said, oh, there's only two, you know, it's just not like it used to be in the old days. IMAX where, made $22.3 million uh, worldwide. And and was twelve percent of North America's gross. For some reason, I can't get the week next weekend's numbers. Uh, for well, here we go. So this is uh for Tuesday, March eighth. Uh, in the regular screens at one of our cinemas, the AMC Patton Creek. Well, you'll pay an extra dollar for your ticket. It's showing at two o'clock, two thirty, three thirty four, four thirty five, six, seven thirty eight, and eight thirty. That's on a weeknight. So, no, the idea that you're only getting three screenings a day from this movie, you got lots of screens, you stagger the openings. No, there's, uh, they can handle all the capacity there is. So if more people wanted to see the Batman, they would have been able to accommodate them. It's not the old days with a physical print and one screen. So I just don't think that's true. Look at the movie. It made $256 million. I don't think the three-hour running time held it off at all. Unless you can point to me that the entire country was sold no, no, out, no, it was a theory. Meaning, and and yeah, I know, but I thought that ended decades ago. You know, the idea that oh, long movies can't get make as much money—that's since we've had you know multiplexes with twenty screens, and you walk up and there's fourteen screens showing one movie on opening weekend. You kind of go, well, that that's not a problem anymore. No, in the like large urban areas, probably not as much of a problem as it is in, say, more rural areas where there's a fiveplex. And now also helping that, of course, as you know, there's not a lot of movies out right now. 
like in the middle of the summer, a normal summer pre-pandemic when you had different tracks and you could say, well, okay, Warner Brothers, you get two screens and you can put, you know, and, and Disney, you get two. Now it's, uh, you, you can put Batman on every screen and you wouldn't necessarily, I guess, Uncharted, you'd be knocking out of the way, but uh well, let's keep talking about Batman. The Batman did not open in Russia. It was going to, and we thought it was too late for them to to change their plans. But uh, the Warner Brothers paused the Batman after Disney paused their film releases coming up in Russia. Then Sony paused all their upcoming films. And finally, Universal, the last one to do it. So that was interesting. These studios are saying... We don't feel good about releasing the movies in Russia right now. We don't want to cheat our fans out of a movie. But one problem is that they don't want to advertise on state media that is sending out propaganda and telling people lies and misinformation. I mean, I've seen news stories about people saying people in Russia don't even some don't even know it's happening. Others don't believe when their family and friends call them from Ukraine and say they're bombing Kiev, and they're like, "No, they're not. Don't be ridiculous. You got Nazis there. We got to get rid of them." You know, so so they don't want to have that propaganda happening, and then an ad for Batman. So uh, they don't want to feed the state agency. They know that would be a bad look, or maybe they morally object to it, but they're just not doing that right now. So all those upcoming movies are being paused in Russia. Remember that has been a one billion dollar market worldwide. Uh, in a year at, at its peak levels. So that's serious money. You, you're saying Russia. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. What do you think about AMC, Regal, and Cinemark all charged from a dollar to $2 more for the Batman, depending how you were seeing it? They were, they were charging more for this particular movie. I looked in New York and Birmingham, and yeah, I saw regular standard screen, the regular ticket price at that theater for that time, you were paying an extra dollar to see the Batman, a dollar fifty or more if it was a bigger format. Now, Adam Aaron, the CEO of AMC, telegraphed this. This has happened before, as you pointed out. Regal and Cinemark did this for Spider-Man: No Way Home, and it's happened for some other movies. They say we're desperate; we want to charge a little extra, but they don't make a lot of noise about it. They just sort of slip it in there and hope people don't say anything. Adam Aaron, however, the CEO of AMC, said, "Hey, look at what he did." Look, look. And he says, he sees, quote, considerable upside opportunity ahead if we continue to be imaginative on pricing. Imaginative. <laughs> Is that what you call it? Genius. What a, who thought of charging more? What a genius move. You know, there's a, a big debate. Is it is it uh, variable pricing? Is it uh, no? That's where you charge more at eight p.m. than seven, or or the right. demand is higher and then you charge more. This is strictly this particular movie. We are charging a premium. So when we finally get a movie three or four times a year that a lot of people want to see, we're going to stick it to them. Instead of trying to encourage people to have a regular movie-going habit, having a great time, and maybe going once a month instead of once a season, which is what most people do, most people go at best to three or four movies a year in the movie theater. That's the 80% of people. You got the 20% or the 10% or the 5% who go all the time, like me. But most people go to movies once a season, and they're going to stick it to them. They're going to say, oh, you've got the Avengers. You really want to see that? Or the Batman, you're going to pay super money. And like it's already pretty operatic in its length. Well, we'll charge you opera ticket prices. I just don't think that's smart. What do you think? Uh, you know, it's coming no matter what. I think uh, they're trying to get dynamic pricing involved, you know, like concerts, you know, like all of a sudden the person next to you paid $60, you paid 80, just like in airlines. That's airlines why I don't, that's why I don't go to concerts. That's why people hate airlines. There's no other option 
when you're at those airlines, unless you get a budget airline, unless you're in Europe where there's actual competition. But in the United States, we have like three airlines now, national airlines, and there's no competition for a lot of flight paths from this city to that city. So you're stuck with them and you have no choice and you hate it. Movie going is oh, an I, option. I, I've, I've Movie going is an option. Right. Movie going is not yeah. uh, something you have to do if you want to get from New York to L.A. People can't drive a car. They don't have the time or ride a dirigible. They must take a flight and they do it and they're furious. A they, hate, they hate the airlines. How far back did you just reach for a dirigible? <laughs> well, that could be the future <laughs> if we have to get off uh, of uh, uh, fossil fuels. It may not be. People may have five days to get across the Atlantic to head, head to Europe, but that's another thought. But seriously, I think it's a terrible idea. Movie going is supposed to be something you want to create a habit for. We just talked last week positively. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't like the idea. I've written pieces about it in the past that said. The one thing, as you say, people hate about airlines is the fact that the person sitting next to them somehow scored a great deal and has paid the same, you know, paid a hundred dollars less for the same seat. Uh, well, even if they paid the same price, it. I don't like playing a high price. I don't want to pay a huge fat price. People by, by dynamic pricing. Price. I, yeah. I guess my question would be: if you're going to charge fifteen dollars Friday night at seven thirty and Saturday night at seven thirty, uh. could you charge? Could you charge us seven dollars? Literally four days later, five days later on Tuesday at 730. In other words, well, could you drive they, demand that way? Their argument is that this happens all the time. Matinees are cheaper. Seniors pay less. Uh, there's sometimes a lot of theaters have had Tuesdays special prices throughout the decades. There's no change in the world about having different prices for different times or different days of the week or different people. Obviously, if I'm an AMC member like I am, I don't pay that extra dollar for the Batman. I'm already giving them $20 a month. So they've already got my $20 a month because the vast majority of people don't go to see a movie once a month. So they're already getting $20 from me cold. Until I see two movies, I'm losing money. So they love that. But I just don't think it's a good idea. I just think it's a terrible way to build a business. Yeah, well, I'd love to hear what our audience has to say uh, here which means you should call us at 888-567-7263 or write to us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. Let us know what your thoughts on this, this whole dollar more for the Batman. Or screwing, the <laughs> screwing people when they when you got a big movie. Charging them yeah. a premium, that's what it is. Well, we're back at the box office. It's the worldwide box office. Here's an interesting fact. When I was doing my charts, Comscore had had a little trouble this weekend, but normally it's like, Early afternoon on Sunday, when you might get the Comscore chart coming out onto their website, that's where I begin pulling together information and go everywhere I can. The numbers, uh, uh, the, the trade papers, uh, Indian box office charts, China box office charts, Japan box office charts. You know who had the first numbers available? And I don't understand this. Wikipedia. I went to I went to the new I went to the Batman and saw updated the latest figures on Wikipedia before Comscore came out. Before I had Sunday figures from the trades, Wikipedia had it. They had it for like eight or ten of the biggest movies of the week. They had the updated best numbers, and those held true once I saw Comscore and the trades all weigh in. How would Wikipedia get the numbers before it was reported by the trades? I don't even understand how that happened. So Sperlman already gave you the info, but if you know how Wikipedia can be ahead of the curve, I'd love to hear it. Anyway, we confirmed all the numbers with all the other places, and the Batman is number one with $256 million worldwide. In second place is Uncharted. Though it's not a competition because they can all make money. The Tom Holland flick made another $46 million. That's at $270 million worldwide. That looks well on its way to tripling its budget of $120 million. I bet there's an Uncharted 2. 
Certainly there will be another Spider-Man movie some way. Spider-Man No Way Home made $16 million. It's at $1,866,000,000 worldwide. One of the biggest hits of all time. Will the Batman get there? We'll have to wait and see. In China, the Battle at Lake Changzhong, a.k.a. Watergate Bridge, it's a sequel to the original, that made another $14 million. It's at $616 million worldwide. Death on the Nile in a rough uh, pandemic environment made another $14 million. That's at $115 million worldwide. Nowhere near what it would have made otherwise, but I think the high profile of a movie release really helps this movie. Once it hits streaming, people are like, oh, yeah. You know, I think you do not lose by getting... 40 or $50 million out of the box office. Even if you spent $40 million to promote it, it's like one big ad campaign for when it hits streaming. And to me, almost every movie seems bigger when it's played in the movie theaters and gotten all that review and all that attention. Movies appear on Netflix and the next day you forgot they were released. Isn't that true? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really think box office is, is a great vehicle, even if you're not making a lot of money. I really think it's a really important thing that gives a movie validity, a high, higher profile, helps it stand out from the 5,000 other movies being released on your streaming service. So uh, let's not downplay that. Certainly Channing Tatum is enjoying his directorial debut with Dog. That's at $45 million worldwide. And Sing 2 is doing pretty well. That's at $360 million worldwide. And then back to China, where Too Cool to Kill, a Chinese comedy, is about to hit the $400 million mark. And Nice View, a Chinese thriller about a brother trying to get his sister medical care. So, of course, heist, you know, pull a heist, of course. Yeah. That passed the $200 million mark. Now, here's a Japanese, Japanese, a Japanese drama that opened up in China. It's about... Two young, a young couple, a guy and a girl who meet when their train pulls out of the station before they can get to it. And they're the last two people stranded on the platform and they start to talk and they have a romance and they fall in love. It's called I Fell in Love Like a Flower Bouquet. <laughs> it played in Japan and did really well. Now it's opened up in China. It made $3 million this week and it's at $46 million worldwide. The Jennifer Lopez flick, Marry Me, has debuted on streaming. It was, they said, their biggest streaming number since whatever, except they won't put them out, so we don't really know what it did. But it's now on streaming. It's about to hit $50 million worldwide. And Jackass Forever is chugging along. That's at $70 million worldwide, half of what it would made in normal times, but still better than nothing. There was one more thing that Anthony D'Alessandro said. If you go see Marry Me, you're probably going to want popcorn. It's a nice romantic movie. And he said, you know, ticket prices, it goes up a dollar, big deal. But I have to agree with this. He says, the one thing that really infuriates people are the incredibly high concession prices. And I agree with him. I, I'm buying the kitty pack when I go, to, I could have the kitty pack because that's the only thing that doesn't have 10,000 gallons of soda and popcorn. And it's plenty. And it's like $8, but it's humiliating and ridiculous. And they don't even mention it, really. You have to sort of point it out. Do you have the kitty pack? Like, yeah, yeah. I want that. So it's just, you know, when you're paying more for your soda and popcorn than you do for your ticket and your ticket's already expensive, that's not a good thing. And that's where you can really make your money. And it's been, you know, through studies, everybody has, everybody, uh, exhibitors have learned that uh, they don't mind when ticket prices go up, but they sure do mind when, when those concession prices go up. Yeah. So, well, in social justice, we've covered this before. So in fairness, we should mention it again. Evan Rachel Wood, the actor, came out talking about Marilyn Manson and his abusive behavior that she alleged he committed. He is now suing her. There's a 
a documentary that's coming out and he's not questioning the, the people that released the documentary. He's saying they were tricked too. And he has many specific allegations against her and another person that she worked with. He says that they impersonated an FBI agent. He says that they, they created a fictitious email account to claim he was sending out uh, distributing porn. He says they knowingly lie. I mean, it's just, it's weirdly specific and elaborate. And you're like, Oh, that's odd. I'm assuming I'm still, you know, because Evan Rachel Wood does not stand alone. When she came forward, multiple people came forward after her to speak publicly about his behavior and or sued him for abusive behavior and physical and or psychological abuse. So she's not alone. When you got a group of people, you tend to think of it. But those are pretty very specific allegations. We'll have to see where that lawsuit goes to, but I am assuming they will go nowhere uh, and that she is telling the truth, but we shall find out. Um, but award season is with us. That's a lot more fun to talk about. Flea and Summer of Soul did really well at the IDA Awards, the Documentary Awards, and The Lost Daughter, the Maggie Gyllenhaal uh, movie, was a big winner at the Spirit Awards for her and Olivia Coleman and so on. So yeah, that's the first time in five years, screenwriter, director, and best picture all went to the same film. Did it win Best Actress too? I or, don't or no. believe so. I don't okay, think so. Okay, so well, it's still a big night for Olivia Coleman since she starred in the film, but she did not pick a Spirit Award up. So the, that's interesting to see. That certainly helps. Gets people to say, you know what? That's a movie I have to watch. That's what I've been doing. I've been watching movies for my movie awards. My group gets together on the 18th. So I've just watched The Power of the Dog. I've watched The Mitchells versus The Machines. I've watched uh, I Gotta Get Dakota and some other stuff. So, you know, I'm, I'm doing my award season work, doing what I can. And I've been streaming them. When you stream stuff, Sperling, are you doing it on a smart TV mostly? Or are you doing it on your laptop when your wife and kids are on the TV? Or where do you watch stuff when you're streaming? Uh, I've put a little theater set up in, uh, in, in my home. Now, I say that, keep in mind, it's, you know, it's a home setup. It's not uh, you know, a screening room, so to speak. Uh, and, well, I guess it is a screening room, but it's not you know, it's a, a modest giant. Room. Yeah. Um, and so I will use Roku. Or I will use the smart TV or, or if it's a screener where I have got, you know, just a, a link, link on your laptop. Yeah. I, I put it through to the, uh, I have an HDMI cable that I plug into the, to a computer that then goes to a very big giant screen. Uh, and so that said, I purposefully kind of did that. Uh, I don't watch anything just on a laptop. I can't stand doing that. So I, I know that's not the way the filmmaker intended it to be viewed. So I. I do it all the time because of the the world I'm in right now here in Birmingham, Alabama. And I feel like when I'm a foot away sitting at a table watching my laptop that I'm actually getting a good sense of the immersion that you might get, even if you're watching on a TV, because it's a big image when you're just a foot, you know, sitting right there, like literally, you know, very, very close to the laptop. So I feel like I'm doing them some justice or the best justice I can. But we should say we've got streaming numbers and Nielsen reports on the streaming for Amazon Prime, Disney Plus. Hulu, Netflix, and Apple, but that does not cover how I watch it. Doesn't cover when you stream to your laptop or your phone. And of course, it's the United States only. So uh, that's interesting. And we do have some streaming news. NBC, unsurprisingly, once its contracts have ended, it is cutting ties with Hulu. It's sending its programming like Saturday Night Live and The Voice straight to Peacock. Of course they are. And Disney, oh, that's right. So of course they're doing that. And that, that makes all the sense in the world. And Discovery, by the way, that hit 22 million subscribers. So that's interesting. And we've got some big numbers. Ozark had a huge 
week last week and a big drop this week, but it still racked up 2,370,000,000 minutes of viewing. So season four, part one, dropped at the end of January. And now we're in that second week of viewing for them. It's the week of January 3rd through February 6th. It takes like a month for these numbers to come out. I don't know why, but Ozark had a really big second week. 2.3 billion minutes would be a lot anytime. Their first week was 4 billion minutes. Now they're at 2.3 billion minutes. That's still a lot of viewing. And we finally have news for Reacher. My brother's excited. The Amazon Prime series based on the Elite Child books. That came out. The guy's big and the show is big. Reacher reached 1.8 billion minutes viewed. Season one dropped on February 4th. So that means this is just the first three days of availability where it racked up 1.8 billion minutes. So week two, I bet it stays the same or even grows a little bit or certainly won't drop that much unless people really hated it. And from all I've heard, people love it. Then there's Sweet Magnolias on Netflix. Uh, that just dropped 1.3 billion minutes from just the first three days. That's a romantic drama. Raising Dion, uh, that dropped on February 1st. So that's a, almost a full week of viewing, 1.1 billion minutes, and so on and so forth. You can look at our list. We tell you whether the viewing minutes have dropped or risen or about the same from the week before. You can see how the Book of Boba Fett is doing. It's up when they drop their six of seven episodes. And Pam and Tommy... They've dropped three of eight episodes uh, at this point of viewing, and that's doing okay. It's on the charts. So when you look at the original series, you have seven from Netflix and one each from Amazon, Disney, and Hulu. So original series really matter. But of course, people watch a lot of acquired series too. Yeah, you know, a there's a, a, some talk about the reason that Hulu doesn't just fold into Disney Plus, even though at mm -hmm. this point, because it was Fox, NBC, uh, and Disney that were right. all... CBS was not it. part of it, right? CBS always Correct. stayed separate. No. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it was, and by Disney, it was ABC that was a part of it. Uh, and that the reason that they don't do that is it gives them some outlet, uh, gives Disney some outlet for maybe non-family friendly. Uh, well, yeah, but then they have, they have stuff that's more intense. They have kid, they just added new kid programming parental controls because they now have shows like Daredevil and other things that are sort of intense PG 13. They have things that they want to make sure are, you know, parents can control that. And you just have a different thing. You have on the Disney Plus bundle, you have Disney, you have Hulu, you have whatever, you know, Fox, if you like, or whatever, you know, silo you want to display. I don't think that would poison the Disney name. You know, I don't know. Yeah. I know what you're, you're trying to do there. I can see, you know, I don't know if you know this, listeners, but I can actually see Michael and I could see... Uh, that he is actually trying to come up with a good segue into Big Deal or Big Whoop. He was going to say something like, I don't know, it would be a big deal if Hulu got folded into... Uh, the I don't think it would be any big deal if uh, Hulu was part of the Disney Plus bundle. Yeah, well, you mentioned Big Deal. So it must be time for Big Deal or Big Whoop, our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and tell you whether they're really overhyped nonsense. Epic Games. You might remember them from Fortnite. They're the company behind Fortnite. They have purchased the music website Bandcamp. Epic emphasized the artist-friendly nature of Bandcamp when announcing the deal. So that bodes well for fans of the artist-friendly service. In a statement, the company said, Epic and Bandcamp share a mission of building the most artist-friendly platform that enables creators to keep the majority of their hard-earned money. Bandcamp says more than 80% of sales go to the artist. With Epic, it will expand internationally via mobile apps, vinyl presses, live streaming, and more. Big deal or big whoop? I think it's a big deal. It's like the days we saw where studios and other people picked up record labels. You know, that's a big 
uh, change. It's a big move into a new area. There's a lot of overlap between video games and music. We've seen, you know, concerts and things taking place in the virtual gaming world. And this makes like a good fit. They're saying the right things. Hopefully they keep the philosophy of Bandcamp alive and it can continue to grow. One of the biggest bookstores, you know, is Barnes & Noble, right? Barnes & Noble is probably world's biggest bookstore chain, would you say? I don't know that, but that may be true. Well, but one of the biggest bookstore chains in the United States, they are shutting down. And many booksellers and publishers are absolutely ecstatic about that. Now, huh? you might, yeah, uh, well, here's the thing, Michael. Uh, it, it just so happens when you're a Amazon, that's what people think. That's what people want. The company is closing some 64 outlets in all, including 24 bookstores and dozens of pop-ups. They continue to be involved with brick and mortar since the company owns Whole Foods, of course. They also have Amazon Fresh stores now in a number of areas. But physical locations represent less than 4% of total revenue. This ends an experiment in book selling in person that began in 2015. Big deal or big whoop? I think it's a big deal. You know, they tried it. I think they basically failed. They can say, oh, we were just trying out some things and stuff. It's no, 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 it didn't work. I, you walk in the first store and I thought, this is crazy. It has like the weird curated selection of books. And you're like, well, half the things I'm looking for are not here. I don't see the advantage of this. It just felt poorly thought out from the get-go. I didn't think it would work and it didn't work. So, you know, they're just going to have to stick to being the world's biggest bookstore in terms of actual sales. That would be Amazon. <laughs> yeah. You know, certainly uh, they're not only closing Amazon bookstores. There were more Amazon stores like Amazon. Well, the Amazon Go stores, I think, are still going to be open, but they were just like Amazon. I can't remember what they, they called them, but you well, would go yeah, the, in. The, and the, go, the Go Plus store. Yeah, they still like that. They're still down with that. They're still working on that. That's for sure. Yeah, they had like, oh, here's our... Uh, Here's our Alexa devices. That was always on display. Prime display was all the Alexa devices. And I liked going in and seeing those. Uh, mm -hmm. But you could do that at, you know, what, what's uh, Best Buy or any electronics store. You don't need to go into an Amazon store for that. And they would have books at those stores. But the, the selection was always like, oh, th these are like five books. You've got five books in here. So <laughs> exactly. It's not really Right. And if they're not the only ones, some, some stores are shutting down. Others are being acquired. In the UK, Waterstones has picked up another bookstore chain. So you know, Waterstones is, I think, the largest bookstore chain in the UK. And they have snapped up the Blackwells chain. That's a great indie bookstore family owned, I think. They were almost getting ready to sell it to their employees, but somehow that didn't work out. That's a shame. But now Waterstones has picked up those 18 stores. That just means more consolidation in the UK market. That's that's never good when it gets too big. Uh, just uh, three or four years ago, they picked up Foils, another big chain. So the big stores are just getting bigger. But that doesn't mean that they're the only game in town. This is cool. Fantasy author Brandon Sanderson Big fantasy writer, helped finish the Wheel of Time books, which that mini that TV show is now airing on Amazon. He has his own number of series of books that are really, really popular, like the Mistborn series. He launched a Kickstarter campaign. He has a big relationship with publishers, but he decided he's written four books or is writing them, and he's going to release them independently with this very elaborate system in 2023, one book a quarter. And if you sign up for more on Kickstarter, you can get like a fan pack with extra stuff, or you can get something once a month. You can choose just eBooks or every format, all these options to go. And he launched on Kickstarter. He said he hoped to raise $1 million, and within 24 hours, he raised $15 million. $15 million. Right today, it's a few days later, he has raised $25 million. That makes it the biggest Kickstarter campaign in history. 
of any sort. And he's not done. He's got like 20, you know, 20 plus days to go where he's still going to be kickstartering it up. And that just shows you once you're a name brand, once publishers have helped you become a name brand all over the world, once you've got a show playing on that you've contributed to playing on Amazon, it began with Robert Jordan, but Brandon wrote the last three or books or so, uh, you know, you got a big name. You can go out on your own if you're willing to do all the work. It's a big elaborate thing, but he's got more than 100,000 people pledged at least, I think, $20 to be a part of this. And those books will come out in 2023. You can sit there and watch them. Just watching it click up every few seconds. You can see more and more. 107,904 backers. 107,905 backers. It's just crazy. $25 million for his Kickstarter campaign. Wow. Yeah, and I'm trying to see like what was the, the uh, you know what did it beat out for Pete's sake? And it looks like it, oh, it was beat the, it out was the it was the per, what was it called the Pearl Watch or the the Pebble Watch Pebble Watch? That's right, the Pebble Watch. What was that? Was it a health uh, watch or was, health app watch or something? Yeah, it was like yeah, it, it was connected to Samsung phones, and it was uh, you know out. I think Google wound up buying them, uh, and that's how they created their watch. But uh, yeah, $20 million is what they made back in 2016. Wow. Which is, uh, that is a big deal, making $20 million <laughs> that way. But uh, yeah, uh, by the way, the name of the bookstores or the, the stores that Amazon had was the Amazon four-star stores. Those were the ones that had everything like that got four stars. So you could go in there and look at the That's the right. That was, their, that was their gimmick. Yeah. By fans or yeah. whomever. Yeah. Yeah. Now, former Disney head Bob Iger, he once fancied himself a good candidate to be, you know, president of the United States of America. Why not? So he weighed in at key times on the issues of the day. And frankly, with a company as big as Disney, there aren't many issues that don't impact you in one way or another. But the new head of Disney, Bob Chapek, is more conservative and far less interested in talking politics. Why make waves when he just wants people to come to the new Star Wars hotel and drop a bundle and not get annoyed at his take on, say, immigration? So with Florida poised to pass a nasty anti-gay bill that will muzzle teachers and isolate LGBT kids more than they already are, Chapek said, hold on, hold on. Let's check the notes. Hold on. Wait, all these pages are blank. We're <laughs> oh, I get it. He said nothing. He said nothing. When reporters reached out for comment, though, as Disney cast members and creatives called out his silence, Chapik said, yeah, once again, nothing. I guess their policy could best be described as don't ask, don't tell. And I would say, don't worry, they won't. Is this a big deal or a big whoop? Uh, it's a big whoop, I think. Unfortunately, I doubt he'll pay much of a price. But there's a problem. What if Florida becomes a no-go for tourists? What if there's a boycott a la Georgia and the draconian laws they passed against women's right to choose? A lot of studios and movie makers said, uh, we're not filming our movie there. Sorry, we are not doing that. Some people say, like Stacey Abrams, the would-be governor, they say, look, come here, spend your money and have an impact. Don't punish the people who probably agree with you. And that's perfectly valid, but it does create problems if you're in Florida and people suddenly say, wow, a state of hate. I don't want to go there. That's bad for Disney business. So actually, once Bob Chapek heard we were going to be discussing this story on the air and maybe a few other people weighed in, like, you know, all the gay employees of Disney, which is a lot. If you've ever been to Disney World. Anyway, uh, he said put out an email to everybody and said, look, Disney has unwavering support for the LGBT community. We've funded all these things. We've donated this money. Yes, we've also donated money to the politicians passing this anti-gay hate bill, but that's, you know, that's different. And as far as the bill itself, 
nothing. We're not going to talk about it. So he might as well just shut up because <laughs> that's yeah. Well, yeah, that's even worse than what he did before. He's like, I don't want to talk about it. It's like I really don't want to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, I think that uh, you know certainly. I mean, this bill is just so. I'm not. Let's not get into the bill because it's just so ridiculous that you can't say. It, it, you know that this is the problem. It's like talking about it almost legitimizes it. It's a pain in the pain in the yep. neck. Uh, in any case, let's let's talk about something more pleasant, like maybe making money. That's what Universal Music Group did. They had a very good year, according to an analysis by Music Business Worldwide. UMG hit a record $10 billion in revenue worldwide last year. Streaming revenue passed $5 billion. Publishing revenue hit $1.5 billion. And since everybody seems to be selling their catalogs to these publishing companies, like Neil Diamond did last week, uh, that's kind of important. And by the way, UMG's profitability, that is its earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization, EBITDA, it hit an annual adjusted Two billion dollars. That's that's profit. That's profit. Big deal or big whoop? Yeah, we can match that. Uh, it's a big deal, right? Interestingly, when you look at the numbers, according to MBW Music Business Worldwide, they spent half on publishing deals last year than they did in 2020. So they spent a ton in 2020, about half as much again in 2021. But yes, publishing has been the hot property around right now. And Universal Music Group is not shy to do it, but they're only doing it when it makes sense for them. So they had a great year. There's a lot of money to be made in music, which is why the artists and the songwriters go, well, can't we make some of that? Yeah, they're like, wait a second. So when it was CDs, uh, we were making <laughs> millions of dollars and now it's streaming and you're making $5 billion and we've made nothing. Um, what happened here? Yeah, that's, that is a problem. Uh, now, now speaking of deals, well, let's, let's actually talk about our neighbors first, because you okay. can say goodbye to your neighbors, Michael, oh. because long running Australian soap is being canceled after 37 years on the air. Blame streaming. Ooh. Oddly, the show, yeah, well, oddly, the show has been a bigger hit in the United Kingdom than it has down under for a number of years. And with declining ratings, the UK's Channel 5 chose to drop the show in favor of original dramas that, you know, they made themselves. ITV seemed a potential home for the soap, but the channel just announced its streaming service dubbed ITVX. So it's over for neighbor, Neighbors after 37 years and 8,783 episodes. Michael, we have got a lot of work to do to catch up. Big deal, big whoop. <laughs> We're at 575. We're not doing bad. It is. We're ready for syndication, that's for sure. It is a big whoop, I guess, right? It's 37 years. Everything comes to an end at some point. It seems like maybe even cops. So it's, uh, you know, it's sad, especially if you've been a fan watching all these years. But, you know, 37 years, it's a shame. But ITVX, this is interesting. It is ITV has launched a streaming service. It's an ad-based streaming service. So it's there's no fee. You can get it for free. And it just, you know, goes out on the air. And you can watch ads while you watch the stuff that ITV makes available. Uh, they also bought out the BBC from BritBox UK. They own that, but they did make a long range content deal. So it won't change BritBox International or I think the UK at least for years to come. So if you have BritBox, don't worry about it. But they've also launched ITVX. Whether that'll be available worldwide or just in the UK to start, I don't know. HBO Max is finally getting a foot in the door of live sports. Speaking of things you can subscribe to, uh, the Warner Discovery Company, although it's not Warner Discovery yet, very what, close. What, is that the official name or what is the official yeah. name? Oh, is uh, it? Okay. 
Yeah, I, did, I, I made like, that up. I didn't know that was the real name. <laughs> yeah, whatever, whatever. Anyway, uh, it has a package deal for soccer, aka European football. Okay, the U.S. Mm-hmm. women and men's national teams games will now air live on TBS, TNT, and HBO Max in an eight-year deal valued at two hundred million dollars. Half the games will be exclusive to HBO Max, and the other half will stream on HBO Max and air on live TV. So, is this a big deal or a big whoop? Well, it's a big whoop. It's one more place with. Big pockets looking to buy sports and, you know, Paramount Plus is the NFL and March Madness and college football and golf and soccer. Peacock has Premier League soccer and the Olympics and in entertainment, sort of the WWE. Disney has all sorts of sports via ESPN. Hulu has some NHL. Amazon has Thursday Night Football. Facebook has games, baseball or football or something. Twitter had games. Everybody wants games. Netflix. Yeah, we need sports. We do need sports. You're right. No, no, I was going to say we need a just watch just for sports. Justwatch.com <laughs> yeah, really. so that we can go, where the heck can I watch this golf match or tennis match or <laughs> tell you how much I know about golf? It's a golf match. Speaking of streaming and speaking of Discovery Warner Brothers, HBO Max or whatever it's called, the company behind CNN made an announcement on cost. The new standalone CNN Plus will cost $6 a month, the same price as Fox Nation. Now, a cheaper version with ads will be available. And of course, it will cost less when bundled with HBO Max and or Discovery and or whatever they plan to do in that regard. But if Fox Nation can charge six bucks to hear Tucker Carlson go on and on about his bromance with Vladimir Putin, then CNN Plus can charge six bucks to watch Don Lemon make like Oprah with his own daytime talk show and the like. So is this a big deal or a big whoop, Sperling? Well, it's a big wait and see, and that's the problem with CNN Plus, right? I mean, people are wondering how they're going to make this successful. I'm not doubting that they will make it a success. It's just, you know, they're trying to figure out a way to make money off of this. They're going to have a an ad-supported version, as you mentioned. But here's the thing. That's where people are, are that you know, go figure. There's money in advertising, Michael. <laughs> it's, it's a big shock. Even Disney's like, you know, we're going to reduce the price of Disney Plus. Of course, you'll have to watch ads. Uh, and so like there will be an option for Disney Plus. You can pay your $7 a month or maybe that will keep raising. But that's ad free. But they will have a cheaper version. Again, an option for like maybe $3 a month. Who knows? With ads. So we'll see how that comes out. But yeah, they're planning to do that as well. And that is uh, pretty much the, when you look at where people are making money. Yeah, sure. Re- recurring revenue, subscribers. Well, Netflix, sure. Netflix, Netflix. <laughs> Everybody wants to be Netflix. They seem to be doing just fine without ads or sports. Just saying. Right. It's you know not one size fits all. But Fox Nation, maybe they're making good money. They sure don't release any figures. So we don't know what they're doing, how cheap the programming is. I've never watched it. Uh, there's new content there as well as, you know, repostings of stuff that aired on CNN. But, you know, if they're making really good money, you know, tell us, you know, leak the numbers. Let us know exactly how many people have subscribed and what you're generating, because that would be cool to know. And and we talked about this right before uh, recording. I said, hey, you know, I, I, I'm a cable subscriber. Do I get CNN Plus for free? And you went, hold on. No, you do not get CNN Plus for free, just like you don't get Fox Nation for free, which means at least for me, when I get CNN Plus, I won't be getting CNN Plus. That's no, basically no. what it means. I'm not going to get yeah, it. Yeah, me neither. Now, New York City ended its indoor mask requirement. However, Broadway is playing the long game. It has outpaced London and received great reviews for both having and enforcing masks. Fans and vaccines. To sh- yeah. And vaccines, yeah. Uh, fans have returned to shows in very encouraging numbers because they feel safe. So Broadway announced it would keep a mask and vaccine requirement until the end of April. Big deal or big whoop? 
Well, I think it's a big deal. It's a big move, and I think it's a smart move. I don't know that the London box office suffered from not having strict mask requirements. You go to shows, they're like, oh, please put on a mask, and nobody did anything about it. You read a lot yeah. of American reviewers, number of New York Times and others who would go there and be like, oh, my God, I do not feel comfortable here. Nobody's wearing a mask, and we're still in the peak pandemic. So uh, I was like, I don't want to go to London right now and do that either. New York, I have felt comfortable and ready to go back to a show I want to see the David Byrne show before it closes. Uh, I would be doing that. I would feel comfortable doing that. And they're doing this through the end of April. They could end it sooner. And I think maybe they will because the numbers are still dropping so quickly. And once you don't have to wear a mask anywhere else, maybe they'll feel there's a little bit of a, a pressure to do that. But by setting the standard of like, we care, we're going to be safe, you're going to feel comfortable. I think that's a really good value to have. I think their audience appreciates it. It's a pretty unique thing to be in a live theater for three hours. And I think they're smart to do it this way. You know, sometimes sticking it to your core values can be good for business. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, look at the Women's Tennis Association. After more than a decade without a title sponsor, the WTA finally, finally landed a deal with Hologic, a U.S. company that is a world leader in medical devices and diagnostics focused, guess what? on women's health. Huh. Terms were not disclosed except to say the multi-year deal is bigger than the $14 million a year that uh, they they had a, a deal with. I don't know who it was with, but it expired in 2011. What prompted Hologics? Gosh, that is a hard name to say. Hologics. 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 Okay. Well, uh, what prompted them to make its first ever sports sponsorship? The WTA stance on China is what made it. Uh, and, and by the way, and women's right to speak about Sexual harassment, abuse, and assault. Of course, the WTA proved itself bolder than almost any other sports organization when it put its money where its mouth is when they decided, you know what? When it comes to China, they're out. Despite major financial problems due to COVID, the WTA pulled its tour from China over the government's repressive treatment of a top female tennis player after she went public with a Me Too story regarding a top bureaucrat. Now, that was a Hologics, lot of money. That was a lot of yeah. money. Yeah. Well, now Hologic says that prompted them to reach out and explore a deal. Given the financial strain it was under, thanks to COVID, a decade without a title sponsor, and walking away from a lucrative money deal with China, the WTA says this is the most important deal in its history. Big deal or big whoop? Well, it's a big deal. It's great to hear. Thanks to our uh, longtime listener, Noam, who sent in a link to this story. I hadn't seen it myself, so that's great to see. Really happy to tell this story. Sometimes it works out right, and it did for the WTA. Good for them. Well, yeah, and that's, I, I want to say it's inside baseball, but it's kind of a, you know, people have been keeping a close eye on this. But really, the, the whole concept of, I don't want to say boycotting a country, but removing your, your business or your, your product from China, uh, well, that's happening a lot in Russia these days, and that is what our Inside Baseball segment is about this week. Inside Baseball is where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and, more importantly, how they affect you. First, I have to ask you, Michael, what do you think? That was a pretty good segue for not actually oh, having any that of that was, written down. That right? was excellent. That was excellent. We got a lot of categories here. I'll try to be quick. Um, but I'll set up the movie section and then find out what you think about it. Uh, we know, as we already reported, that a lot the major studios have all put a pause on their movies being released in Russia, in part because they'd have to advertise them on state-controlled media, spreading propaganda and lies and misinformation about the war in Ukraine. 
Then we had the film festivals weighing in. Khan banned Russian delegations, but not Russian films. That's my understanding. I believe Patrick had something different in his column, or maybe it was the LA Times. It said that, that they would not be inviting anybody associated with the Russian government or any Russian delegation, which kind of alludes to uh, the filmmakers themselves. But no, I, I believe they have every intent to bring in films from, from Russian filmmakers who are not fans of the government. I believe that's, that's true. The ban will end when war ends in a way satisfactory to the Ukrainian people, says Khan. I don't know how they'll determine that, but good for them. Director Kirill Shorbenikov is under a three-year travel ban in Russia for the films he's made and the, and the statements he's made. He is likely to compete, it seems, with Tchaikovsky's wife. So I believe Khan is saying we're not going to publish the independent individual filmmakers, especially if we believe they are not pro-Putin. Same thing for everybody else followed their path. Venice and Toronto said we're going to ban the Russian delegations, but not individual filmmakers. I think that's what Khan is doing. And we actually, had Ukrainian- it, I, I'm looking at a couple of uh, stories here. It's unclear whether Khan will allow. I know, but it's I know they didn't say. So that's why I think it was wrong to say that they did say they wouldn't ban. They were going to ban filmmakers. I think they purposely didn't mention it because they're keeping it secret until they reveal the films. That's that they're oh, okay. trying to protect the filmmakers. So it's very wrong to say they absolutely are banning filmmakers. And I think that's why. But what they should be doing, it's not so clear. First of all, we have a number of major groups of people, not guilds, I don't think, but just top people in Russia who have spoken out against the war. Some top Russian screenwriters condemned the war. Uh, they said the Russian government has banned the word war. Well, the word peace is still allowed, allowed, said the screenwriters in a statement. The peace of the Ukraine has been violently destroyed. The peace of the sovereign independent state is under attack. The peace of the Russian people has vanished too, end quote. Other groups of people who have made statements include Russian cinematographers, animators, various unions, and distributors. That's very dangerous. That could end their career, if nothing else, forget about being imprisoned or whatever. So more power to them. And we have a Ukrainian filmmaker who said, look, a lot of Russian directors are our friends and allies, and they suffer under Putin. However, another Ukrainian producer said, look, look, no, this is not the time for red carpets for our dear Russian colleagues. No movies whatsoever. I don't know what the answer is, but it's complicated, and I appreciate how everybody's trying to figure out the way to do it. What do you think? Do you think the I film think, festivals made the right decision? I think as, as yes, I do. Uh, I think that as long as this is going on, you have to be on the right side of history here and unfortunately that means that the people who you know i felt bad when we invaded certain countries uh iraq because i am american okay and i realized that that trickled down to me uh watching uh, the gymnastics over the weekend i know you like gymnastics uh yes michael did you see what happened over the weekend i did i did a russian competitor put a pro pro war pro russia symbol on his uniform for which he will pay a price Right. But at the same time, it's like, no, no Russians can compete in any international sports, except for when they're competing in international sports under a different Well, name. no. Well, this, this was the, it was like a, a, for some reason, they didn't feel they could ban under that. Yeah. They were like individuals, you know, under like just Russians. Yeah. Well, that's the way to punish the country, but not punish the people. Sometimes people think that's enough. Others say, no, they shouldn't be able to compete at all. Then you're talking about somebody whose whole life, maybe they hate the government. I think it's very difficult. You know, do you say an artist must loudly condemn Putin before you will let them do anything? Or do you just say, no, they that, have to Well, be, that's what the know. Met did. That is what the Metropolitan Opera did. 
Right. They said they said, oh, yeah, and in a Trebka, but she's been a supporter of Putin. Right. If somebody is loudly supportive of Putin, you think like, well, to heck with you. But there are other people who have family in Russia or they still live in Russia or they just don't feel safe speaking out. Or even if they live in the West, they feel like if they speak out, their family and friends in Russia might pay the consequences. I can't judge them that hardly. I wish they would speak out. I wish everybody, there are protesters in Russia risking their lives to protest the war. God bless them. I don't know if I'd be brave enough to do that. So I am comfortable cheering on the people who are against the government. So if you've got a, a Russian filmmaker who is clearly anti-Putin and has a documentary they want to show at Khan, I think you'd be crazy not to give them that platform. Why not? But all the others who are maybe don't speak out, maybe they're just playing it safe. But I'm not going to judge them. I don't, I, I, you know, I, I feel sorry for them too. I don't know what I would do in the same situation. It's not easy. But Russian delegations, absolutely not. Letting people compete under the Russian flag, absolutely not. But four years from now, if, if Russia is still in Ukraine, now you're punishing the athletes who devote their whole lives to a sport. Maybe they don't like the government at all. All they want to do is, you know, play field hockey and suddenly they can't compete in the Olympics. I understand that. That's tough. It sucks. It's bad. Whether the right decision to say they can't compete at all or just as individuals, I don't know. You've got top Ukrainian producers disagreeing with each other. They both have the same goals. I can respect both opinions, and I don't know if there's a certain perfect right answer to this, but I'm glad people are trying to figure out and doing taking the first smart steps like saying no Russian delegation, no Russian this or that, you know, no official Russian participation. That seems reasonable. That's what the MIP TV did in television. They said there will be no Russian presence at MIP TV and they put the onus on the government. They say they're just they don't say we're doing this. MIP TV says, look, we're in these host countries and we have to follow these sanctions and rules of the host countries. So they're sort of taking a little bit of an easy way out to say it's not us. It's just the country we happen to be in. Netflix is pausing all deals in Russia, and now they have cut off their service. RT America in America, they have been deplatformed in America. They have, they have fired their staff and they are shutting down. They've been kicked off most outlets in the United States. And similar moves are happening to the Russian government-controlled propaganda channels of RT all over the world. Now, the late Larry King had two shows that aired on RT, much to his shame, and other hosts with shows on it include Dennis Miller on the right and Tom Hartman on the left. I've been on his show. What's the difference between RT America and Voice of America? Is there a difference, Sperling? Uh, Voice of America is independent, if I'm not mistaken. I, I well, mean, it's a U.S. government-owned thing. It's, yeah. uh, it's, it's funded by the U.S. government. It's not independent. It's not. Oh, yeah, yeah. Know. I'm thinking of NPR. Sorry, yeah, uh, which also is actually, I guess, partially supported. It's mostly uh, donor-supported. Um, but that said, I don't know what the difference is between RT and, and Voice of America. I would say there's not a lot, except uh, I assume that Voice of America isn't. It's surprising how many Western outlets were available in Russia. You know, there were, you could get CNN in Russia. You could get Bloomberg and BBC, but now they've all shut down their channels. They can't even report from Russia because of new laws that have been passed. So, um, uh, you know, that's not easy. NPR, by the way, is privately and publicly funded. So it is, of course, a combination of public and private funds. Um, I think there's not much of a difference except that Voice of America is a respected outlet that is providing accurate, factual information around the world, whereas RT is, is demonstrably not. So, you know, that's a difference, but I don't think that's an American blinkered reaction. I think that's a fair description of the two channels uh, around the world, you know. So, uh, is any, what about sports? There, there's so many repercussions. We got this Russian oligarch who's buddies with Prime Minister Boris Johnson and a lot of the Tories. He's going to sell the Chelsea Soccer Club and give proceeds 
I assume profits, to Ukraine war victims. I don't think he's going to take a, all an entire loss on it. I think he says, if I make more than I paid for it, then I will donate some of that to Ukrainian war victims. But you know, you're getting blowback all over. Look at the Paralympics. What do you think they should have done there? Now you're talking about people who are disabled. They had the Paralympics. It's supposed to be above politics. There's not supposed to be any politics at the Olympics. And at first, the Paralympics said, look, we're everybody's nonpartisan. We're not about politics. Everybody gets to compete. We're not going to judge. And then every other country said, well, we're not competing. And so the Paralympics said, all right, the Russian and Belarusian teams, they can't compete. You know, the Ukrainian team barely made it out of their country alive to get to the Paralympics. <laughs> That's hardly an exaggeration. And so now you're talking about people who are physically challenged, trying to compete in a sport that they love. But because they were born in Russia, they're told you can't be part of the Paralympics. That may be the right decision, but it sure is tough, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's... I you always thought should, it was somewhat yeah. like silly that it's like, well... You know, uh, you've you have a history of of doping, and uh, yeah. you know, so we're going to say that you're not doping. banned. <laughs> yeah, you're not you're not banned from the Olympics, but uh, you just can't compete as your country. Then, so you're you're competing under the ROC, Russian Olympic Committee, or com right. and, you and get then in your the goal, end, you just don't get to hear your national anthem. Yeah, and, and then in the end, you, it's like, are you punished or are you not punished? Frankly, if if I know it hurts, but you kind of have to if you're going to do it. You're going to have to do it in mass. Yeah. The now, what entire about the country internet? has to be squeezed. The what internet, the you got to leave on. Some, well, now, this was interesting. One top, I hadn't thought of this, but one of the top internet providers in Russia says they are shutting down their service. They don't want to block the news getting into Russia that people might be able to access. It's not quite like China. You know, you can actually access foreign websites and information. They don't want to publish the Russian people, punish them, but they don't want to provide a highway, an outlet for Russian cyber attacks on the West. They say, if we don't shut down the internet, the Russian people, the Russian government can attack Western companies and Western governments. And we don't want to be responsible for leaving that open. I hadn't thought about that. Good point. Uh, I will tell you that uh, one of the big problems right now uh, that several Russian peers are uh, having is that they're getting stopped on the street by you know Russian authorities and say, oh, give oh, yeah, me the right. passcode to your phone. And then they oh, go yeah, through yeah. the phone to of find course, out yeah. are, are what are you, you looking at? Yeah. yeah, sympathetic to yeah. You're looking uh, at Telegram. I want to look up the Western lies. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's like yeah, um, that's scary. That's for that's why I, I hate to just demonize the Russian people. It's a great culture, a great country with a great and beautiful history and great things about it. I'd love to go visit it if there wasn't a brutal dictator in charge. Uh, so you know I don't want to demonize an entire people, but you certainly have billionaires and people who are praising. Putin, like that conductor we talked about last week, or Anna Trevko, and others who are happy to benefit from the the brutal government that they live under. So those people I have no sympathy for. People walking down the street, having them say, let me see your phone. I have no sympathy for the oil companies. Wow, that's a big change. Didn't think we'd see that in our lifetime. Throughout, Even after Russia attacked the Ukraine and stole the Crimean lands, we've had major oil companies doing everything they can to limit sanctions, weaken sanctions, not get into Russia's face because they want to make money. But now with this, Shell and British Petroleum and yes, finally, ExxonMobil are ending their energy investments in Russia. They are pulling out of the country entirely. Uh, that is a major change. I mean, look at what happened under Trump's administration. Rex Tillerson was Trump's secretary of state in part because he was so cozy making deals with Putin for oil. 
And now that's happened. So that's a that's a change I never thought I would see. I thought we would be dead before we would see any change with oil companies making money in Russia. Did Shell finally pull out? Because originally yes, they were saying they are pulling out. They are pulling. You know, okay. it hasn't happened today. They got to they got to wind down their investment, sell it off, do whatever they need to do. But yes, they say they are pulling out. Shell, British Petroleum, and Exxon Mobil was the last big holdout, I believe. Well, and you know there was some oh boycott Coca Cola, boycott Coca Cola. You know, here's the thing. Why? They're because they're still, they're still, well, they're still yeah. in Russia, Coke, the Coca-Cola yeah. company. However, the reality is they're not in Russia. Coca-Cola, you know, the, the subsidiary bottling company that is only 20% owned by Coca-Cola is based outside of Russia. They had to buy a company inside Russia that bottles the the, the product. Well, but in these Russia. are all these are all games of requirements of the governments to do business there right. and things like that. And Coke so, is still making money in the Russian market. Are they advertising on Russian TV? Do they have billboards up on the Russian streets? If so, maybe they should yank those deals and not be advertising at least right now and peddling their wares. That's a that's I don't know if that's going to work, but that's certainly a reasonable thing. We're pulling vodka off American shelves, right? What's remarkable to me is that, you know, everybody keeps comparing, oh, since World War II, or this is like World War II. Guess what? With Coca-Cola, it's like World War II. And here's what I mean by that. <laughs> in, in World War II, uh, the Coca-Cola said, yeah, Nazi Germany, we're, we're out. We're done. You know what uh, Coca-Cola Germany said? Well, you know, we still have the license to use your name. And the Coca-Cola company said, fine, you're not getting any, uh, you're not getting Formula. any syrup. Yeah. Right. And, it, and, and, and it's a super secret recipe. That's so what, well, that's what they can do. Well, that's what they can do. Absolutely. And, and you know that's what the Coca-Cola yeah. Germany did? They didn't care, but that's okay. They did. No, what they, they went could. and created Fanta. Well, that's okay, but they did what they could. Coca-Cola did what they could. So that's not something to say. It's no point to doing. Is your is your point of that story? Well, why bother? They'll just create Fanta. No, 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 or is no, your no. Point, my, the your point, point is they did what they need to do. Or you're saying now don't buy right. Fanta. No, no, no. <laughs> Fanta no, is a Nazi no. drink. No, no. Right. My my point my point is is that history is repeating itself, and there was no way for them to not to prevent it from happening. Meaning, well, I they made it. I made they, yeah. they they lost control of their brand in these countries because they can't prevent governments. From saying, oh, you have to, you have to sell your company to, or, or your the rights to your product to a, an internal company. There's nothing well, they could have done to prevent that. You have to Other give your tech to that China. Country. You have to give your tech to China and let them have. I think that's access. bad too. Right, exactly. Well, we've spoken a lot about politics, and for two years we've been speaking about the pandemic. We're certainly not pandemic experts. Now, unfortunately, I think we're going to be spending at least a year talking about the political impact on the entertainment biz and the complicated ethical. Uh, issues that arise when that happens. And I think we should jump right to our email uh, from I agree. David Campbell. Uh, hi, Sperling and Michael, David Campbell writes. He says, first, I must say, I enjoy the podcast. It is on my first rotation every week. Thank you. We yes. First off, thank you. Secondly, I guess I should actually get a rotation. That's actually not <laughs> a bad idea. Uh, but he says, I have to st say, stick to showbiz. Boy, have I never heard truer words. Uh, you were all over the place in this week's episode with your geopolitical knowledge and literally- Or lack thereof. Or lack thereof, yeah. It literally felt like you were contradicting yourselves during Inside Baseball. You want to talk about true. I, like, as we were doing that, I thought, oh my God, we're getting all sorts of things wrong here. But, uh, and I knew it as we were doing it, but I was like, ugh. Uh, in any case, he's got four, or no, three bullet points. Finland and Sweden are both in the EU. 
have been for over 20 years and in Shenzhen, which is the you know area of free movement of people. Finland is in the euro. Or is it's I get on the euro. Sweden is not. So Sweden has its own, I think it's kroner. I, I'd have to go go and look. Neither Sweden or Finland are in NATO, but there is stronger public support to join them now. Uh, he says, I am not an expert here, but Ukraine is not in the EU and not in Shenzhen. I believe they have special Shenzhen uh some weird status that they got, by the way. I did look that up. I believe they have a free trade agreement with the EU. Oh, <laughs> I should finish reading the email. And yes. have applied for associate membership. And they did that 10 years ago. And now trying to fast track membership. European Commission uh, President Ursula von, von der Leyen. Leyen boy, I, I should have learned Keep- how to pronounce that name. He, he stated that Ukraine belongs in the European Union. They also want to join NATO. And I just made Ursula a, a, a man. So uh, this is why I like sticking to show business. He says, keep up the entertainment news. Regards, David Campbell, a disenfranchised Brit in Helsinki. Boy, I butchered reading that email. You should read the emails from now on. You should read them first before you, uh, before you I, read I, them I again. I read them, but it was, yeah. I think the way to read his last line is, keep up the entertainment news. And he's a disenfranchised <laughs> Brit. In Helsinki. So, David, thank you very much for writing. Everything you say is true. Uh, certainly, we are not experts on politics, though we follow it a law. But I have to dis- disagree with you. I think we have to deal with politics. The more people know about the rest of the world, the better. Americans are often mocked correctly for not knowing a lot about the rest of the world. I don't know, the e- Europe, whatever, that whole big thing. So I think the more we learn, the more we get better. We have to be humble. And when we get something wrong, be like, thank you for correcting us and hopefully get better and improve. We try it with pronunciations of names from all over the world, the film industries in Japan and, and China and France and Poland and all over the world. And I think we should try to do that here as well. Uh, but everything you say is true. At least we didn't confuse NATO with NATO. At least we didn't confuse the North North Atlantic Treaty Organization with the North American Theater Owners Group. So there you go. But the EU has 27 members and NATO has 30 members, 28 in Europe and two, of course, from North America, the US and Canada. So the overlap is tremendous. And that's why we ignorantly made the mistake that we did. We thank you for pointing it out. Uh, Right now, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Georgia and Ukraine are all officially recognized as aspiring members of the EU. And of course, the UK left the EU, but is still in NATO. Idiots. Uh, So there you go on that. But we do appreciate your correcting us and pointing it out. We do want to get it right. We don't want to make this a politics podcast, but it's hard to avoid it right now. There's just a lot of uh, complicated deals that you have to talk about when to boycott, when not to boycott. And we'll try to do a better job in the future. But now, uh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. just to finish off the Ukraine uh, thing. So uh, U- Ukraine uh, is in a an association agreement with the EU, uh, which is part of that trade agreement. And Ukrainian citizens were granted visa free travel in this Shenzhen area in 2017 for about 90. So I think it's up to 90 days in a 180 day period. So they don't need a visa. Yeah, you know, the Schengen area was very interesting. I had never heard of that before, but it's kind of what I thought the EU was in general. It's this 
passport free zone. A bunch of countries said you don't need a passport to travel around here. It's an area comprising 26 European countries that have officially abolished all passport and other types of border control at their mutual borders. It's like the United States. You know, you got all these different states, but you can just travel around. Nobody says, hey, let me see your driver's license. Same thing in the Schengen area or Shenzhen area. That makes it sound Chinese. I don't think that's right. I think it's Schengen. Uh, but uh, it was shined in, well, it's Luxembourg. So however you would pronounce it in Luxembourg. So that's interesting. I I'd always envisioned the EU as being you don't need a passport, and that's generally what the idea is in this particular area, and it's called the Schengen area. So thank you for bringing that to our attention as well. Hopefully it won't come up a lot in the show. If it does, we'll learn how to pronounce it. Uh, but I said I, would, <laughs> I, I said I thought we would probably die before you know, before we see the oil companies pull out of Russia. And that was going to segue us into obits. We got five or six people here. If you ever check out the show notes, Sperling does a great job of providing all the links. And we do have some more extended information for the people in our obituaries that might be of interest to people who love it. Tony Walton, for example, he's the Oscar, Tony, and Emmy-winning costume and set designer. He died at 87. I love this. He was married to Julie Andrews for a while. He met, he saw her for the first time when they were kids, and he was watching her play an egg in a production of Humpty Dumpty, and he fell in love with her right there. They married, they had a daughter, they divorced, but they remained friends for life, as, as will happen. Uh, and when Walt Disney came backstage at Camelot, the musical, to say hello to Julie Andrews, who was going to star in his big movie coming up, he met Walton and looked at his portfolio and ultimately he hired him to do the sets and costumes for, as Sperling would put it, a little movie called Mary Poppins. <laughs> so that worked out well. So he's got a, if you went to Broadway, you've seen Tony Walton's name. Actor Tim Considine died. Speaking of Disney legends, he's a star of My Three Sons. He played the oldest son. He also played in a bunch of serials for Disney. Why those aren't available on streaming, I don't know. He's on Spin and Marty, The Hardy Boys, and some other stuff, and only one season of Spin and Marty, and none of The Hardy Boys is available online or on DVD or anything. Bizarre. I don't understand how that happens. Actor Billy Watson died. This is cool. He's not famous at all. He's a child actor. He died at the age of 98. He was never a star, but his family was. The Watsons are the only family to have their own star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. What, the Barrymores didn't cut it? <laughs> you would think they would. But no, the Fondas? No, but the Watsons did it. They had nine kids, and they just farmed him out. When they were filming silent movies, Max Sennett would walk over to the house and say, I need a kid. And the father would say, what age and what sex? And he'd throw a kid out at him and say, here, take him. And so they were in hundreds and hundreds of movies. In fact, Billy Watson in 1939, he was in four films, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, Stanley and Livingston, Young Mr. Lincoln, and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. In that last film, he played the son of the governor who appointed Jimmy Stewart to Congress, of course. And right beside him were his three brothers, Delmer, Harry, and Gary. So that's just a crazy family story. Alan Ladd died. Of course, he greenlit Star Wars. A lot of fun stuff there. Actor Mitchell Ryan died. He was on Dharma and Greg for many years. He died in Lethal Weapon. He died at the age of 88. He did both comedy and drama. He also dealt with alcoholism. He was in all these movies and TV shows and Broadway. And on the soap opera, Dark Shadows, he played... Well, actually, he says he can't remember. He was too drunk at the time. <laughs> and you know, he always you know, got you, cast you, as Jean-Luc Picard. You know, you uh, mentioned Alan Ladd. Alan Ladd, there's a famous story about uh, about the fact that, you know, he, yes, he greenlit Star Wars and he really shepherded that project along. And then uh, when they handed out annual bonuses, uh, they finally, finally, 20th Century Fox could hand out annual bonuses because they were doing so poorly for so many years. They handed uh -huh. out all these, these, uh, these, these bonuses to people that Alan Ladd thought you didn't have anything to do with Star Wars, like absolutely. 
absolutely nothing. Like you didn't even, <laughs> couldn't even spell Star Wars. And yet you're getting this bonus. And he just thought it was so unfair that he took all the money and it was a considerable amount of money that he got. And he gave it to 14 employees that he felt deserved it. Oh, he cool. never told anyone who well, those employees were. Oh. oh, Oh, that's funny. And so the publicity department at one point had uh, printed up T-shirts. I'm one of the I'm one of the lad fourteen, and, and but they had hundreds of these shirts made, so nobody really knew. To this day, they don't know who the fourteen were. Yeah, he was called Laddie because he was so well liked. He worked at two big studios. He was an agent. He worked solo, of course, greenlighting movies like and making movies happen, like Blade Runner and The Right Stuff, one of the best films of all time. And Once Upon a Time in America and Body Heat, Night Shift. Not a lot of huge box office hits there, and that company had to calm down for a while. But he capped off by Braveheart. He won the Oscar for Braveheart. And I think one reason he won is because people liked him so much. He was up against Il Postino, Apollo 13, Babe, and Sense and Sensibility. I wish Apollo 13 or Babe or Sense and Sensibility had won, but it was Braveheart. And I'm going to blame Alan Ladd because he was just so liked. <laughs> this well, you know, cool. he did say that you'll never take his freedom. <laughs> Duval Hecht died. He's the founder of Books on Tape. He died at 91. It's the 70s. He's got a long commute in California. He's sick of listening to the news and music on the radio. And so he bought a reel-to-reel tape and put it on the seat beside him so he could listen to the books on tape recorded for the blind. There weren't a lot available, and the thing was so cumbersome. He's like, this is ridiculous. And in his house, he founded Books on Tape. At the end, after 20, 30 years of doing it and having unabridged versions recorded by little-known actors, he sold it to Random House with 6,000 titles that they had done for $20 million. And he really put books on tape on the market. He didn't invent books on tape. He didn't invent the audio book, but he really made it popular all over the country, Duval Hecht. And finally, Elsa Clench fashion correspondent for CNN, died at 92 for 20 plus years. She was the one at fashion shows and she did my favorite interview of all time. She's at a fashion show. Halston has this new line coming out. You can see all they show a cut of the runway and you get all these women in these, all these different shades of blue, these dresses, these gowns, these pants, these shirts, these, these blouses, these purses, everything, all these different shades. And she gets Halston on the air and she just says simply, Halston, why blue? That's it. And he talked for two minutes. I'm like, that's genius. You don't need to say anything. She could have said Halston, new line, has a lot of colors of blue. Tell us what inspired. No, no, no. It's television. She just goes, Halston, why blue? And he goes off. He's like, blue is the color of the sky. Blue is the color of the ocean that gives us life. Blue is the color of possibility. You know, he just goes on and on. It was the best interview I've ever seen. I, I long for her simplicity. I long for her brevity, but we'll never reach brevity, will we? Not with Showbiz Sandbox. No, although... This Week in Tech is on my podcast rotation, and this week, it's three hours long. <laughs> and I was like, yes! <laughs> and it's usually We're not like the worst. worst. Yeah, exactly. Uh, now, by the way, Schengen is how you pronounce it, uh, Schengen. Uh, okay, great. So how's the G pronounced? With a, with a Sometimes y, with it's a, pronounced soft very G? softly, Schengen. Like Schengen, okay. like, like, like running, like, uh, yeah, like, like it's a, yeah, it's, it's a very interesting pronunciation. Uh, but you know what? Tune in next week to try and hear us uh, pronounce other, other, you know, geopolitical words that uh, will probably, you know, ultimately butcher, really, let's face it. Uh, and, you know, to do that, you can subscribe to us in iTunes, the Google Podcast Directory, Google Podcast Store, Microsoft Marketplace, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere they give podcasts away for free. You can usually download our, our uh, 
you know, next episode. And please do. Uh, and you know what? Please rate and review us in any one of those podcast aggregators that allows you to do so. It helps us out when you do. Links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode can be found on our website, showbizsandbox.com. That's where you'll find ways to email us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. We're also on uh, voicemail. You can leave us a voicemail. And please do. We'll play your voicemail. 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're also on Twitter. We're at Showbiz Sandbox is our handle. Or on Facebook, facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox is where you can like our page. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group, MGMT. They can be found on whoismgmt.com. That's their own website. Michael Giltz has a website, and every week it's something new and exciting. What is it this week, Michael? This week it's wikipedia.com. I've contributed to them financially. I've done work on the site. They're great. How they got the movie grosses before anyone else, I don't know. I I guess we could try and figure out who that is, but uh, you know what? In case you can't find any of Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry on wikipedia.com, which I think you probably can actually. You know <laughs> Maybe. I'm in there. I'm in there. I've got some, I'm referenced in a few pieces. I got a few. Yeah. As am I. Bottom. Yeah. Uh, you know what? Why not head on over to michaelgiltz.com where all of his work is aggregated. Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com until next week. Play nice. Uh-huh.